You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help us all be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is John Kessel. As a volleyball player, John participated in 16 US Open championships and played professionally in Europe. He started coaching at the collegiate level in the USA in 1971, and led teams to national titles in 1986 and 1987. He was team leader for the 2000 USA Olympic Beach Volleyball Team in Sydney, which brought home one gold medal, and for the 2004 USA Paralympic Women's Sitting Volleyball Team in Athens, which came home with a bronze medal. But it's as a coach and administrator, though, where he has had the most profound impact on the game that he loves. He has worked for over 30 years at Volleyball USA and 20 years at World Paravolley. He's an author of 12 books, including the Impact Coaching Manual, which is now in its 33rd edition. He has been inducted into the Volleyball Coaches Hall of Fame and in 2007 was named a Sports Ethics Fellow by the Institute for International Sport. John consults to other Olympic sports, in fact, well over 20 in fact, and travels around the world talking about coaching, in particular in the youth space. This was one of those interviews which I would classify as a masterclass. 
Among the many highlights that John shares, some that resonated with me afterwards were his view that the player who knows why they are doing something will beat the player who knows how to do something. The power of praise as a coach and looking for ways to catch people doing the right thing and reinforcing those. And how he defines success as a coach as never being an athlete's last coach. And just before we go to the interview with John, if you enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to learn more, then head over to our website where you will find loads of exclusive audio and video content that you can download and share to bring a different context to the challenges that your teams might be facing. And if you're looking for a coach yourself, then consider elevatedleadership.com.au. We're a small team, of which I am one, who will help coach you towards the leader you aspire to be. We coach CEOs, sports coaches, business executives, and also do some pro bono work. If you'd like to know more, all the details are in the show notes. And now, please enjoy our interview with John Kessel. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. John Kessel, good afternoon, your time. Good morning from Australia, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. It's great to be here, and I love the country that you live in, Australia, having lived there for a couple, nearly a couple of years of my life, and you guys have a have a great place to, to live and grow up with, uh, your kids and everything else that you do there. Such a sporting country, too. I love it. Well, John... Tell us where you are today and what you've been up to so far. Yeah, I'm in heaven. Um, I'm in a magical valley at 3,000 meters, 9,000 feet, sitting in about an hour and a half west and south of Denver, Colorado. And uh, it's a legacy project since I left USA Volleyball with my wife, Lily. We are um, operating a, or, you know, creating this this legacy of a veteran and first responder healing project. Excuse me. It's a, um, it's a, you know, magical Valley. The Ute Indians have been here for over a thousand years and we have prayer trees on the property and we have a fly fishing stream and a pond and 3d archery where you get to shoot a 3d Trianosaurus Rex that's seven foot tall. And, you know, it's just, a great place to heal and recover because there our closest neighbors are essentially about 10 miles away. And so it's very dark sky and very quiet and lots of time to think. We brought up the women's Olympic water polo team here just because before Tokyo, they did a 10 day retreat. And seven of those days was a silent retreat. Nobody talked on property. They wrote on whiteboards for seven days as they got ready. And then they won the gold medal in Tokyo. Wow. So magic place. I'll put the link in the show notes uh, so everyone can see it. But ha- having looked at the images, it really is uh, something quite yeah. special and hope to visit you one, one day there. But before we talk about visiting, we need to talk about volleyball because your experience is long and storied. And in fact, we've interviewed other people on this podcast that have that have mentioned your name most prominently, of course, Hugh McCutcheon. But, but John, you've experienced some of the greats in the volleyball world up close. Now there's people like Doug Beal, Hugh McCutcheon, Toshi Yoshida, Yang Ping, rather Lang Ping, my mistake, and of course, Marv Dumphy. But John, from this experience, seeing these people up close, what is it you think the great coaches do differently 
that sets them apart? Wow. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is that they're great storytellers. Um, and they're very consistent with the culture they're bringing. And by storytellers, let me, let me tell a story. Um, I'm flying back from the 88 Olympic success in a gold medal with Marv Dunphy. Back then, he could just walk around the airport, right? And, or around the airplane. And I was getting ready to write a brand new book for beginning coaches called Impact, Increased Mastery and Professional Application of Coaching Theory, which we put on people for about 30 years when you're a brand new coach. Marv did his thesis on John Wooden. And I said, in 25 words or less, after 100 hours of interviewing this fantastic coach, arguably, according to ESPN, the number one coach in any sport in our first 50 years or the last 50 years, said 25 words or less, what should a brand new coach know? And he said, I don't need 25 words, John. I just need two. Be consistent. And when I think of those names that you shared, they're different but they're all consistent to who they are and they are so you're not getting a dr jekyll mr hyde type coach you know they would never treated everybody the same because we're all different but he also was the probably the master at treating everybody fairly and you know i think those words are really important in any sport or in any company because we are unique and different people. Now, I also think of Lon Ping, and she taught me something that for sports people I think is really important, and that is winning and losing are temporary, but friendships last forever. Um, Jenny, as we call her, beat us for the gold medal in the 1984 Olympics in L.A., the first time China was in the Games. Four months later, where was she living? And the answer is my house in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the University of New Mexico when we were there. And why? Because if you're passionate at that level or any level, if you're passionate about what you're doing, the winning and losing are just one of the parts of the game. That The people that you're competing against are awesome humans. And getting to know her before she came over to escape her fame. I mean, poor lady has got stadiums named after her and stamps of her and you know can't can't you know they scream that we're in we're in south dakota doing a camp together one summer and a bunch of people came to see mount rushmore this carvings in the rocks and a japanese tour bus came up and then they got on the elevator with us and they started riding up and one of them turned around and saw long ping and you know shrieked and within Ten minutes, there's a hundred people outside her door to give her gifts and take a picture with her, you know. That level of fame, it doesn't matter though. You know, friendships are so crucial to what you do. So I always make sure my teams get to know the most passionate player on the other side, even though we lost to them. And that's, I think, kind of a cool message. And I don't know if Doug would do that. But at the same time, Doug is revered because of his ability to teach everybody and be creative. But, you know, Jenny's creative. 
they're they're creative people um, as well. They just create a their own culture because culture eats talent, and if your culture is healthy, then you'll be okay, even if you have great talent. John, you've given seminars in all fifty states in America, but also in over sixty-five nations worldwide. And we were talking just before we came on air of the fact that you visited all the states in Australia. And I'm really interested what this has taught you about the most effective ways of leading people. The first thing is that whether you're a coach or a boss, your influence is never neutral. Uh, Jerry Lynch does a great job. He works with the the Warriors and uh, Steve Kerr a lot. Um, it, I think that may be the title of his book. I don't know. But that's the first thing that I think of when... I think of all the places that I've been and stuff. Um, I also think that, you know, politics are local. I, the, what you have to do, I think Andre Anastasi did a good job of explaining is you have to go to that place and teach to them, you know, and knowing what their culture is and everything like that. Um, you know, I, I also, my gosh, I'm, I'm thinking about the whole way that, the, the, the fact that you're a coach means that you have great power over, especially kids. We had a study done here in the U.S. We put it in the impact manual to explain that power, that when they, they studied all the kids in school, um, teachers or coaches came out about 10th in ranking. But when they went to the athletes, coaches came out second behind their parents and the influence in that kid's life. And maybe more importantly, a third of those kids put their coach ahead of their own parents. What a powerful thing you have. And so I, I love what you're doing here because you're bringing knowledge and wisdom to new coaches as well, who can stand on our shoulders and not make the same mistakes I made at, you know, being a screaming coach at the beginning in 1970. I mean, I've been coaching over 50 years. And in doing so, I, I often talk about old John and new John. <laughs> I've, I've learned some things uh, along the hard way, uh, for sure. I think I've also recognized the, the spirit of Michelangelo. You know, when he was 87, he's laying there on the uh, Sistine Chapel painting, and he yells down to his assistants, and he says, Ancora imparo. Well, that's sort of my motto when I come into a place, and that is uh, still learning. That translates in Italian to still learning. And here he is, the maybe the best painter in, in history. Well, those coaches we talked about, Doug and Marv and Jenny, they're all lifelong learners. And, and your podcasts makes a difference to those people who are willing to risk change and find a, a I'm going to use the word better. I can also use the word more effective and more efficient way to learn a sport or to learn something I'm doing in business um, because it's not black or white in too much of what we do in sport. I mean, I think injury or, you know, physically hurting somebody is is pretty black and white. But outside of that, it's all this sort of gray area of even perspective. If you're looking at a six from your angle there, Paul, and I'm looking at it 
I'm going, it's a nine. And you're going, no, damn it, it's a six. No, it's a nine. <laughs> and, you know, the perspective is really where it's coming in there. I just hope that all the people that I've taken from in 50 different countries and all your states and, and all those other states in my country, I like breaking down silos. I like taking the ideas and if it resonates, just sharing it with everybody because people are people, no matter whether you're from the 10,000 people I'm working on the Cook Islands with where you can, or Bonaire, I've been in three months in Bonaire working with the 25,000 people of that nation. Um, or you're in a huge country like China and you're over there attempting to help and guide some of the leaders in China. But it doesn't matter. People are people. John, you just talked about old, old John and new John screaming yeah. and non screaming. What helped you make the transition? The athletes. Um, you know, I think when I first coached, I was teaching the way I was taught. And, and so we did that in these summer camps and everything. And so we'd run and jog and for, I don't know how long, 45 minutes stretching and doing all these things. And then I, I kind of flash back to what I now call the recess rule. <laughs> I flash back to being a kid you know, sitting there for two hours with a pencil doing math or whatever, and then at 10 o'clock, the recess bell rang. You, you flew out onto the field. You immediately started playing. You you didn't jog around the <laughs> field and then stretch and then say, wait, wait, because everybody else is playing. If you were doing that, I got to stretch. And nobody came in, pulled, you know, I pulled a hammy or anything. They came in and they broke their arm, you know, because they fell down hard or something. But... So the athletes there started to help me understand that. And then I, in my clinics, I'll talk about fill in the blank to this. Coach, when do we get to blank? Now, in my sport, it's either um, play, which is the number one answer, or it's spike. But when I first started, old John taught, if you can't pass, you can't hit. So we're going to teach passing. So to anybody listening to this podcast that's a volleyball person, can that idea. You have to say, hi, I'm a volleyball coach. This is the three-meter line. Then we set a thing in the Olympics called a BIC. So let me show you how we're going to hit a BIC. And you, Paul, are there as the spiker, and I throw the ball to you, and you superhero the ball up to me you slap it horribly because you're not very good but you have kind of good eye to hand coordination because you're a human you've been using your hands all your life so you slap it to me i slap it back to you and then you jump and spike now the demo we do would be you know skilled players showing that but that's what those kids will do but within five minutes of their experience to volleyball they're spiking well that's fun and when I taught forearm passing first, and I still see this in well-intentioned, loving coaches and clubs and programs that are growing the sport for us, they say, can't pass, can't hit. And they forearm pass the ball. And the first time a kid that's eight forearm passes an adult ball, they kind of look shocked. And then they come back to the end of the line and then they circle up and they pass the next one and they're rubbing their arms. By the time they've circled it three or four times, 
when they're walking away from the athlete, they're crying and holding their arms. And and I joke about if the, if I came in and did that now, the kid would go home and say, Mom, uh, can I get some ice and open up their freezer and get the ice out and start rubbing it on their forearms and go, Mom, this sadomasochist came to school today. <laughs> Do I have to play volleyball? I don't want to play volleyball. That's not, you know, that's not how you introduce it and make it a joy anywhere in the world. When you start spiking first and slapping it as a form of setting, and then you teach them the serve, which is in my control, and then you finally get to forearm passing because you got to know how to do that. By the time you get to forearm passing, they, they're hooked. They want to keep playing volleyball. So that's some of the best messages I think I've learned uh, around the place, you know, that that matter the most to me, at least. I don't know. John, there's a fascinating aspect to your story, and it's you've worked with youth teams all the way up to National Olympic teams. That's mm-hmm. something that many coaches do. But you've also worked across Paralympic, Deaf Olympic, and able-bodied sports. And I, my apologies for that word, use of the word able-bodied. I'm just not sure how else to, to describe uh, athletes in the Olympic stage. But in fact, you, you're the coach with the most diverse background I think we've interviewed so far. And given that diversity is now a topic that's in the mainstream and it's talked about every day, I wanted to, to ask you, if someone was listening and wanted to bring more diversity of ideas into their own teams or diversity of people as well, where would you tell them to start? So your country and our country are more advanced in this first start, but at all businesses, I think, can consider this when you look at the number of CEOs that are male. I would simply say hire slash get more women on your on the team around your team if you're a sports coach um the 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 what women bring into the normally male dominated sports world is a huge different way to look at things than most men and whether they're disabled or their their race doesn't matter. If you bring women in, you know, they're hardwired differently than men. I, I'm a biology economics major from 50 plus years ago, right? And in the biology side, women are more important than men for the survival of the species. So we are the hunter-gatherers who can die and women stay together. This is a Kathy DeBoer line, brilliant line out of her book, Gender Differences. Men battle to bond and women bond to battle. If you have are a man coaching a woman's team, you think fighting and you know battling is a cool thing. That's how we bond. But the women don't. In general, there are women who are incredible battlers and there are men that want to bond more. Don't get me wrong. But in general, biologically speaking, you know, when I go hunting, I can shoot one female mallard duck to 10 males. <laughs> They're just the women are more important. And to bring them into your program, if they haven't been there especially, brings incredible value on all different levels. Um, 
And that's why it's it's wonderful that in the Paralympics, we have men and women's programs, not just men. And in the uh, Deaf Olympics, there's beach and indoor teams that are men and women. And in Special Olympics, it's either co-ed or it's, you know, men and women. And they even do a thing called unified where able-bodied compete with the Special Olympians in order to make the Special Olympians be more successful beach and indoor at the world championship level i mean these are all the joy of you know volleyball happens to be paul a sport for a lifetime um i just came back from dallas our u.s open there's an 80 and over national championships division going on as we speak you know 80 and over and yet we have a national championships for 11 and under so if you choose to join the sport a little later in life, you still can play in the World Masters. And, you know, Australia's had hosted the World Masters. And it's an incredible opportunity to play a, a true sport for a lifetime with very low injury. And, and uh, it you know, it also, gosh, it builds. You can't be a star in, in um, volleyball the way you can in other sports because, it takes three hits before you can, you know, two hits before you can be the spiker and be the ooh <laughs> or whatever. It, it's a real, true team sport. And it's also a crazy sport. I mean, don't get me started on the uniqueness of volleyball, other than to say, as we spoke, that on an average at an elite level, it takes 100 spikes to touch the ball um, for one second total. And so in a volleyball more I think than most sports anticipation and reading what's happening on the other side of the net is incredibly important it is the number one skill above anything technically in my opinion and most of our top players would probably agree they certainly know that it matters in serve receive they say 80% of my success at serve receive which starts the game so you got to be really good at it happens before the ball crosses the plane of the net if it's a floater and if it's a jumper it's 90% or more but old John what did he do he put up the net and he ignored the net for 45 minutes of practice and partner passed the ball back and forth and got good at passing and could do 100 in a row and all that stuff is happening but it's not making me a better serve receiver it's making me a worse serve receiver so my athletes taught me that too and the diversity that they bring when you're uh sitting player you still have to form pass you still have to pass the serve it doesn't matter that you don't have any legs you know and and here's a bit of trivia for you the mvp of the paralympic games imagine bringing him into your business or whatever um from the 2016 olympics or paralympics sorry in the men's match was Eight feet, one and a half inches tall. The third tallest human being in the world. And he plays Paralympic sitting volleyball for Iran. And it's a fantastic player. You know, he wasn't good at the beginning, but now he's really, really good. So to bring that into your organization, the diversity of Paralympic athletes, deaf athletes, um, spe even Special Olympians. I love seeing some of those companies that find a niche for Special Olympians to be greeters or to be, you know, to find that Special Olympians passion and bring them into the company. Everybody's happy. 
to have that kind of thing happening. John, how do you define success as a coach? Oh, how do you define success? Um, by never being an athlete's last coach is the first challenge and thing that comes to mind. Um, especially for the coaches of younger people. Um, you know, some, some terrifying number. <laughs> I've got to say 75% of kids quit at 13 and under here in the United States. Um, and so if you set up your experience so that they get a joy of play and a love of what you're doing, in this case, volleyball, uh, then if they play the next year, you're a winner. That's success. Uh, you, si simply put, if you kept doing that, I want to keep you at that youngest level because you have great success at giving kids a, a love of the game. Um, I know also this this thing I shared earlier matters even at this level, that winning and losing are temporary, but friendships last forever. So my success is the number of friends I have around the world. You now, you know, to come stay at your new place with your new spare bedroom. <laughs> that's that's a success for me, you know, as a coach. Um, and I think that giving kids and I'm going to add something if you're a youth coach. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Giving the parents tools to help their athlete discover the sport that they want. You know, my son and my daughter um, and my stepdaughter, they they all played multi, totally played 10 sports. He's on the national team, right? VNL and Ottawa today. Um, playing for Berlin Recycling. But he played 10 sports growing up. He played football. He played American football. He played basketball. He skis. He can body surf. He, he, he was a lacrosse captain in high school. He was the tennis captain in high school. But he chose volleyball because of his joy of playing it. And had he decided to do lacrosse, I would have been just as happy as a parent so my line for parents, and there's even a website on this a Canadian friend picked up on, is, is simply to say, I love to watch you play. Any parent, that's all you need to say. I say it to Cody even now when I watch him on the internet, you know, playing overseas. I love to watch you play. And if he, he or she wants to talk more, okay, let him talk more. But you don't need to coach him in the car or anything like that. Just, yeah, I just love to watch you play. So helping parents help their kids find a sport that they love is is part of the, the our mission, I think, as as coaches, even if it means that they go to a different sport. You know, your country. Uh, I I was when I was working down there, we had a great kid, Joanne. I can't remember her last name, but um, she was tall, but it didn't have a great jump. And long story short, we had to cut her from the national team. But I didn't. Stopped there. I went and looked at her, you know, body type and looked at the other sports at the Australian Institute of Sport. And I said, you ought to consider water polo and crew. Because you, I think, could be really good at those two things. So she went up to the crew people first, got on the ergometer, broke a record, 
four months later, she's giving, um, she's winning a gold medal in the uh, four-man crew for Australia. What? John, I've got this great quote from you. You say, as a coach, I burn with the desire to help an athlete accelerate the development of a personal philosophy. That really intrigued me when I read it. And I was wondering if you could describe to us what a good personal philosophy looks like. Hmm. I think you should be able to summarize why you either do your sport or why you coach that sport in three to five words. It's, it's not an elevator pitch. It's the core of why you do it. In my case, I would summarize it to develop amazing leaders. Not in the last probably eight years because of what's going on here in the U.S., I'd probably even also add the word, two more words, and citizens. <laughs> um, because we st- seem to be stopped teaching civility and teaching democracy and teaching government in school, and it becomes this sort of free-for-all. That said, no matter what, you've got to develop amazing leaders. See, we're sharing ideas that may resonate across all businesses, but it also, we have to understand if we're a sports coach, that only 1% or 1% of 1% get to the elite Olympic level. And at the college level here in the States, 3% or so go on to play collegiate sport. So I am sitting here thinking when I'm talking to you about the 97%. And if we can develop amazing leaders in the 97% through the vehicle of any sport, but put that as like top three priority or top two, because you want to, I've learned the hard way that you want to coach the person, not the skill. Because if you work and develop the person, the skill will develop. If you just focus on the skill, the person may not develop. And that's my job to develop amazing leaders as a, as a, you know, philosophy. So, you know, I think of, I think of this group because I'm speaking to most people about team sports right now. Um, every group has three needs that I'm aware of. They have the need to influence the group. And so good coaches figure out ways to say things like, not as I am the boss, the buck stops here, give the team a choice of where they want to go eat rather than say, we're going to go eat there. Or any other way you can influence. You want to go longer? You want to go shorter in practice today? By 10 minutes, not coach overruled, but when a group influences its own direction, they become much more cohesive. They have the need to be affiliated. And the more you do that, and of course, we're seeing all these shirts and everything that you can affiliate with your own Aussie Rules Club, you know, or whatever. But athletes on that team have a need to be affiliated as well. And I think the one that I hope coaches also find time to do 
is to find ways to allow every member on the team to show competency because the group is stronger when everybody can show their competency. So you don't have starters that are necessarily as competent potentially, but my job is to find a way that they can show competency. And it may not even happen in the gym. It may be that we come over to your place, Paul, you're the starting or you're the second uh, best setter on our team. And so you sit on the bench a lot. We come over to your place and you cook an incredible Aussie meal. Well, that competency of your chefness, that competency that you are a great water skier to the group meets the needs of everybody and helps you be a stronger teammate, even though you're still the second setter. And those needs, I think, need to be addressed. Now, in my case, I have a drawing that I put up on, you know, USA Volleyball's website of a player that asks 30 questions um, in a person that looks like they're kind of blocking and it's a front and back page. And I ask questions like, what's your favorite number? What's your favorite room in the house? What's your favorite um, uh, time of day? What do you have a dog? You know, what's your favorite pet? And all these questions, including what's your favorite candy bar? So I can reward sometimes in the proper moment. <laughs> it's because kids don't care how much you know about your sport until they know how much you care about them. And when you're brand new in a business or whatever, you want to collect this info. I mean, we just had this happen with one of our heavy equipment drivers here up at the Valley. We discovered things about him. We had no idea until we talked to him to find out more than just the fact that he's a hell of an equipment driver. <laughs> and that bonded him to this group that is working to help vets and first responders really important stuff I think to get done um, John in your writing you often use the phrase you should turn your wounds into wisdom it comes up in many of the the wonderful blogs that you write um, for USA Volleyball could you share with us one way that you've done this who oh, the storyteller in me can't do one um, I'm going to I'm going to I think it's incredibly important uh, from a wounds to wisdom. I, I, my wisdom now says the more I can bring humor into my workplace or to my program as part of the team around the team and the travels that we do, the better. So he's not from your country, but you watch him a lot. John Cleese is an incredibly gifted leader and thought teacher and comedian. You know? I mean, he's phenomenal. Well, a lot of people don't know, and, and I can send it to you to send out to people because it's hard to find on the internet, but he wrote a book, uh, wrote an uh, article for Forbes called No More Mistakes and You're Through. And what it means is that if you do what you're already doing, you, we aren't ever going to advance. <laughs> you have to challenge yourself and do new things and make mistakes as part of your process of learning. And if I see you making mistakes, then I see you getting better and that's good. And that's part of learning. That's, that's his article that said it. So my hero, I have two or three copies of him up here at the lodge 
is the Black Knight. You know, <laughs> Monty Python's uh, search for the Holy Grail. You know, because you see him get his arms shot off, and I'm come back here. I'm going to bite you. So when I think of wounds to wisdom, you know, that guy got wounded four pieces, and he's still biting back. You know, and hanging in there. Now, I will say this: that perhaps the most important article I've ever read, and and again, I can share it with you. You probably can find it online. It's called Decisions, Decisions, and it uh, was in Science Magazine about 1985. Um, so one of the most important articles I've ever read that influenced me in this uh, you know, injuries into wisdom, the things I learned from my mistakes, is an article uh, on Dr. Daniel Kahneman, whose books are fantastic reading for coaches and businessmen alike. Um, but he's a, a psychologist economist from Israel. And the article called Decisions, Decisions, it, it talks about how if humans phrase things, we're very loss averse. So if you phrase it one way, two thirds of humans will pick this answer. And even though the answer is identical, if you rephrase it so that the loss appears to be the other way, they will change their answer. Two-thirds will pick the other way. Where this comes into play for sport and for any coach listening, humans have variability. We're not machines. We're not made out of steel and can do 99.999% accurate. We make mistakes. When you're a kid, the variability is really wide. And as you get better, the variability goes down. But if you go to the FIB website and look at the where the setter is touching the ball during this VNL uh, tournament going on for men or women, it's going to be the shape of a bell curve because we have a target, but it's we're humans. You know, when you hammer the head of a uh, when you hammer a nail a uh, hundred times, and then you look at the head, even though you hit it a hundred times, you look at it, and it's the shape of a bell curve because we're human. We make mistakes. We go on hot streaks and cold streaks, which don't exist. They just are perceptions. Um, all that goes to Decisions, Decisions article for me. Kahneman was speaking to Israeli fighter pilot instructors about the power of praise and how punishment doesn't work. Except in very ineffective and non-creative ways where it does do some things. But in sport, you know, punishing an athlete is traditional maybe, but not effective for learning and creativity. And one of the instructors, when he heard this, raised his hand and said, with all due respect, Dr. Kahneman, what you're saying, I think, is for the birds. I have praised my pilots after a good landing, and invariably they do worse. And I have chewed them out in the tradition of my military because these are multi-million dollar aircraft. And invariably, after the chew out, they do better. Don't be telling me that, you know, punishing someone doesn't work and praise does. My experience contradicts you. Kahneman said in this article, the next sentence, it was the most exciting moment of my life to realize that these gifted coaches, teachers, were being fooled by regression to the mean. So this is the wounds. This is the wisdom part. <laughs> my wounds are the errors and my being harsh after mistakes. But let's use you as my player now. 
what he's saying in regression to the mean is that if you, Paul, pass on average five out of 10, and then you go on a streak of 10 in a row, after those 10, should I praise you, punish you, or ignore you? And I would argue praise. Statistically, mathematically, factually, in the next 10, what is likely to happen? And it's not zero to 10. I'll go back to the average. You're going to regress to your mean. So I, I jinx you. I break your concentration. I do all these things because I praise you because I then see the jinx happen because you get worse. No, you got to keep praising. You got to keep catching them being good. You got to catch them doing it right. That's my job as a coach. Look at the shit go through. And then when something happens, go bunkers over because my attention is a powerful reinforcer. The reason this is so important in the wounds of wisdom thing we're talking about here is because when you do zero out of 10, Young John Kessel, or old John Kessel, did what? You did zero out of 10. Your average was five out of 10. Paul, get out of there. Sub, get in, sit on the bench. Paul, do you realize, I don't know, you're just stinking at the court out there, and your grandmother is here, and she's got cancer, and, and you're playing like this in front of your parents, in front of What is wrong with you? Just then, just sit. Think about how you're playing so poor. That's old John Kessel. In fact, I'd even say, drop Paul and give me 20 push-ups. And so you do the push-ups. And now, after this punishment, after this harshness, the next 10, what are you probably going to do? Thank you, Dr. Kahneman. Five out of 10. And I see that that works every single time. So don't be telling me it doesn't work because I see it with my own eyes. And I just want people to understand that praise is an incredibly powerful reinforcer and punishment isn't. You know, I'm thinking about this in a way that uh, you can do this in your group and have a great discussion in your business or whatever, because it doesn't matter what in sport or business, bring the group together, have them put up a, you know, two fists and put up a finger for every great teacher they had from kindergarten until um, college or high school, leave it at high school if you want. And on average, you're going to see two to three fingers up. And then the best part, so you can pull out more out of this podcast without having to do it right now is to then say, what are the words that come to mind about those great teachers you had through school? Whether it didn't matter what grade it was or whatever. And they, you'll see words like cared about me, funny, um, knew their stuff. And you see this consistent, like top 15 things that they all say the great teachers did. And I go to the, you know, clinics. Go do that. Clinic is over and I walk off the stage or whatever. (laughs) We know what great teachers do. We felt it. We've had that happen in our lives. And that's what good coaches should do. And really good bosses. They, you know, they create this amazing place to play and they understand that mistakes are part of learning. I, I mean, sport is just filled with mistakes 
unintentionally in almost 99.9%. So don't treat them like they're doing it on purpose is my first thought. But I'm thinking about how now with the internet, Paul, you can go online. I did this recently, type volleyball drill into Google and get 32 plus million results. <laughs> because old John Kessel drilled. Now I let the game teach the game by playing a lot of small-sided to larger-sided games in any sport. That's what's needed because you learn by doing, not by watching. In my sport, when uh, we're at a tournament and there's 12 on a roster and 12 on the other roster and one person is passing the ball, the other 23 are watching. They're not learning volleyball the technical part, the skill, the contact part, the how to be in the right place at the right time part. They're not learning that. They're learning watching and being at the level in the United States where they put out one net and 12 on a side and call it volleyball. You know, people are bored to tears. But how did you learn to ride a bike? I'm going to ask three big questions of the, anybody listening today. How many drills did your loving parents do knowing that nobody has died in volleyball from the ball hitting them, but people die every year learning how to ride a bike? So how many drills did you do learning to ride a bike? And the answer is zip. Did your parents, Paul, because they love you so deeply, hire a bike riding coach? No. <laughs> okay. Uh did you go to bike riding summer camp? <laughs> no. <laughs> and yet you learn to ride a bike by falling and somebody caring and helping you back up. And you learn by doing. In volleyball, it would be how long does it take to learn to ride a bike if you had one bike and 24 kids learning to ride that bike? That's not very effective and efficient learning. We're not getting better faster. <laughs> you know? And it doesn't matter whether it's volleyball, you know, bike riding, tag games. How many tag drills did the Aussie teachers run you through before you could play a tag game? You know, zip. You just play. And you make mistakes and you get tagged. And then you start to problem solve and figure out and you don't get tagged. So we call it train in reality. And that's probably the biggest thing I learned the hard way over time. Marv says it a lot, you know, but... Because this thing I've said before, we often practice, so practice looks good rather than performance, even though it's not as perfectly beautiful. And we need to be more chaotic and ugly and random and, you know, all these things that in motor learning science happens when you play the game. And, of course, I, my dad in 1948 played doubles volleyball after World War II. I kind of followed a little bit in his footsteps and played some. Um, before I really got bitten by the bug. And up until 96, there were no beach volleyball coaches in existence. The doubles game taught you to play two-on-two -two by playing. And coaches enhance your experience and can help you win, but you don't need a coach to get good at volleyball. You just need three other friends, and you play doubles and have a great time, and the game will teach the game. I promise. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. John, I read an article recently where you outlined your 10 new commandments for volleyball. And point one was the one just captured my imagination a little bit. You said, be demanding, but not demeaning. Now, it, it caught my eye because talking to many business leaders these days, people are finding it increasingly challenging to find this line between, you know, pushing someone, challenging, asking more of them, but also standing back and empowering them and giving them the room to go off and, and find the solution or the answer. So this line is a difficult one. And I'm wondering how you've gone about that through your career. Um, when I was old, John, I was a carpenter. And I built players. And I told people their answer because I was wise. Now, I'm a gardener. I create the environment, the soil in which the plant, which I can't control, can thrive. Because I can't control a player. I only have them for, I don't know, 90 minutes, three times a week, you know, at the club level. Everything else that's happening in our lives you can guide them to being resilient. You can guide them to be more self-confident. You can give these leadership skills that I'm talking about, the person, not the player, not, you know, not the skill. But the environment is what I have to create in order to, you know, make this really unfold the way we want it to unfold, which is, Sadly, because I'm playing a sport, I did a research study in 1995 after 100 years of volleyball, and I found one high percentage point that happened in sport. And it doesn't happen in all sports, but in volleyball, it doesn't. That is 50% of the teams playing this game each day for the last 100 years lose. <laughs> Of course, I didn't do the study. It's just what happens. We don't have ties like in other sports. We lose or you win. So if you're outcome focused, it's going to be difficult. If you're process focused, like the great Bill Walsh said, the score takes care of itself. 
So if you provide this environment, if you know your athletes, the way Andrea talked about, you know, in great ways, if you've got this piece of paper that says, oh, my God, he he loves to fly fish. Let's take everybody fly fishing and he's going to be competent and nobody else is going to know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and he's going to, you know, feel good about himself and you might even develop some other great fly fisherman. You create these environments and let the natural stuff happen through competition. Now, it does point out something that as a young coach, I forgot to do, and that was score. Because if I'm sitting here saying repeatedly train in reality, well, when Cody plays against somebody up there in the VNL, there's going to be a scoreboard. And when they play in front of their parents, it goes zero zero to zero one or one zero. That that's reality. I didn't compete enough. I didn't score enough. I didn't put that part into my training enough. Not that it's always going to be there, but because you can you can score ball cooperatively, where you and I work together to keep the ball off the floor. Or you can go transition where it's kind of like table tennis in the United States where you pick the server by going ping pong rallies on and then you fight, you know, that transition scoring. Or you can be competitive, but you don't have to be competitive one zero one one. You can how many how many of this bucket compared to the other half the team in this bucket? Who gets done faster? Who gets it to it quicker? Who gets the highest number of successes in a row who gets how many x out of y and the other group gets to do x out of y and then you change the groups so there's a game called speedball which is kind of like monarch of the court on steroids where the ball is constantly in the air and and i'll run a 90 minute practice and think i've done well and if i haven't done speedball my kids will come up and go coach when do we play speedball you know because they want to play and it's small-sided games and they're having fun well, now my kids come up to me and after I describe the game or the scenario and how we're going to, you know, this is what's going to happen. If I haven't told them, my kids, this is, you know, an Aussie secret to share down to you guys. My kids come up to me and then they go, uh, coach, how do we win this one? And then I create them influencing it. How do you want to score it? And they can tell me a lot, or I might say it this way, or I might have an idea. But, you know, there's like a hundred ways to score volleyball. Doug Beal, that name we mentioned at the beginning with Bill Neville, they created a thing called wash scoring, where you don't get a point just like you normally do. You have to get three in a row to get a point on the big board. And it's called a wash because if you get one and then and then stop me on the next one, it's a wash. And it's zero, zero still. And even if you get two, if it's a three-point wash, you got two in a row, but I can stop you on the third, it's a wash. It's still zero, zero, and we start again. That is fun. That is training in reality. And that's a way to score all sorts of things um, in, in a lot of different sports, too. So maybe the non-volleyball people will pick up an idea there, too. John? You've also been awarded a Sports Ethics Fellow by the Institute for International Sport, which is a tremendous honour, I think, to have at the end the end of your coaching and administrative career. But when it comes to the ethical challenges that many leaders will face at some stage, what advice do you 
give them on navigating their way through it? It's totally trite, but it is a combination of the golden rule of doing unto others um, and just doing the right thing. It, it can be so hard to do the right thing. My wife, who, you know, is up here, uh, I'll give, use her as a storytelling. Again, coaches, the better you're a storyteller, the better you get ideas across because humans don't remember facts and figures as well as they remember stories. Your, your parents put you to bed telling you bedtime stories, not bedtime facts. So that you can remember. So be a better storyteller and read James Lair's stuff on storytelling. A great tennis coach. His stuff on YouTube is 15, you know, so YouTube uh, TEDx talk for like 17 minutes. Fantastic reminder for us. We will be better if we become better storytellers and work on telling our things through storytelling. So Lily had uh, we have a company here that you know sponsors this program that we're building and in a nutshell her past accountant left and quit and retired and the new accountant came on board and found out that we were had failed to pay a couple million dollars in taxes with they had the old accountant who's off the books now did it wrong Lily had no question. She didn't say, I'm not going to tell the government because they didn't find out about it, you know, for seven years. They, they're not seeing it. She immediately let the IRS know. And, you know, we've been paying it down since. So the, the ethic side is just simply do the right thing for the athlete in this case, um, because, you know, the athlete now through some of the questions and the time you spent with them, you're going to be better able to do the right thing. It also flashes to mind, Paul, the concept of what I learned. Uh, I think Karch and Sue Enquist came up with this, is that, you know, for years, we called them substitutes. Words matter. You have done a fantastic job of not saying the word try. Words matter. And in Sue's case, they're not subs. They are game changers. All six of those kids sitting on the bench, their job, and you've defined it to them by being as specific as possible. When they study John Wooden, 76% of his words to his athletes were specific. That's a great target to reach for. I didn't do it young. Here's young John Kessel, the old John. That's it. Reach. Don't do that. I like that. <laughs> There's no specificity in that kind of coaching. You can still say, way to go, because I do still. I say, way to go. But then I put in a comma, and I fill in the blank with what the way to go is about, or else they're never going to know what you're shouting way to go about. I need to be more specific to be a, a great boss and a great coach. It's really important. And in the words that, you know, we say, there are three words that I'd love for your listeners to get rid of. One is try. 
you know, you do it or you don't, Yoda style, but it's really, um, if I had said, Paul, I will try and make this call, what am I really telling you? <laughs> I'm not going to make this call. Party at eight, I'll try and be there. I'm not going to be there. That's human. I use the word try to give myself an excuse because it's totally different. If I said, I will be there because then I go. So just get rid of the word try. I mean, Sisu does something like do or do not. And, and then they finally just say, do it. They don't even have a do not. <laughs> they just say do up in Finland and so. The other word is but. You know, that is a really great microphone system you have and everything, but. So what's coming next? Invariably, some slam, some negatory thing about what I just praised you about. And it takes away, it slams the door on you hearing that I think you've got a great system. And, and it doesn't matter what I'm saying when I go, blah, 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 but. Something negative is coming, something that blocks hearing it. If I change it to and, that's all I got to do as a coach. If I look at you and say, that's a great mic system, blah, 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 and you're thinking he's going to say, where did you get it? Or what is the, you know, I mean, you're thinking, you're not thinking, but, and that I hate it. So get rid of the word that. And the last word is get rid of the word try. And I'm going to let that story go by because uh, uh, it would take a few minutes about how I, got rid of the word don't known in Italy only to say that the human brain has a difficult time understanding the word don't when I say don't pitch them high outside the next thing you see is the pitch goes high and outside that's a world series classic example and you can come up with so many examples of don't and all they hear is the other words and then they do it we need to simply think about what we should do in the next one see every problem you're going to have and i think about this as we wind this down i know every problem a coach or a player is going to have has a past a present and has a future you can't control the past you can learn from it but you can't control it so one third of your problem's gone. And if you think you can control the future, then, you know, you haven't seen what's happening in Ukraine. You haven't seen the meteorite coming through the guy's house and killing him. You know, I mean, you can't control the future. So another third of your problems are gone. You great athletes, great bosses keep their crew in the present mindset. It's called, the USOC, Sean McCann calls it, a right here, right now focus. I remember seeing Marv in the 88 Olympics where 13-7 on the Russians and the the site, you know, the game, if we win two more under side outs, we're going to win the, the gold medal for the second time. And Marv pulls the group together and he says, okay, on this play, and it was 13, you only had to get to 15. He's saying, this is what you're going to do. He didn't talk about the next point. He talked about that point. That's what great coaches help their athletes focus in on because you can't control the past and you can't control the future. So stay in the present and you'll be a much more successful athlete and staying in the present, knowing 
that these wonderful athletes in volleyball that are 13 year olds out there, Paul, I won a game 25 0, didn't change the lineup, and lost 0 25 against the same team. Because the variance in 13 year olds is huge, but they didn't do it on purpose. And they didn't do it because they didn't practice enough. And to add to that, I'll give an example of humans don't do this on purpose. It's just part of the randomness of sport. I'm looking at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. China had won the 82, 83, 84 gold medal, 85, 86, 87, everything. They're in the gold semifinal match against Russia. They'd beaten Russia 21 straight times. They had nine returning gold medals, as I recall. And the score of that match, Russia won 15 0, 15 9, 15 to 2. Hello? Do you think they didn't practice enough? <laughs> Do you didn't think they didn't care enough? No. It's probably why we love sport. The, the shorter the matches are, statistic, uh, mathematically, the more likely there is an upset. The longer they go, it's called finite Markov chains. The longer it goes, the more likely the better team will win. We have taken our game from sight out when I first learned it, where we're playing at 3 o'clock in the morning because you can play for 20 minutes and the score is still 0-0. Zero, zero. We've taken it to rally scoring. Why? Because it creates more upsets and lets smaller nations win against the bigger, better teams. And it does. Now, do the college coaches in the U.S. like it? No, because they're threatening their job security. But it's better for sport that there's more upsets likely occur. Well, to take it to the final example, Paul, if you played Roger Federer a tennis game to one point, one serve, you might win every now and then. But the longer you play Roger, the more likely he's going to beat you. And that's you don't have to get much better to beat teams much more often. It's it's uh, if I win 50 percent of the points and you win 50, we win in tennis. I'll use tennis as an example. Um, we win 50 percent of the sets, games and matches mathematically. But once you get to 53 points, dropping me to 47 and there's a five point difference, you win 80 percent of the sets and 90% of the matches. And all you got was consistently five points better than me. You just have to look up finite markup chains in sport and you'll see, you know, how this unfolds. So, um, I, you know, my point is to give kids, uh, kids a love of the game, a passion to play through a possible bad coach for a season, because they love the game so much, develop their leadership skills, develop that person. That's the 97% of us job because we're not up at this level that gets the top 1% of 1%. Um, but I don't think the principles change a whole lot up there. We're still teaching them to be competitive and have fun. Cody loves to play. <laughs> just loves to play. Watch the Brazilians. They love to play. <laughs> They just happen to be really good at it. So, John, if I could 
if I could finish with one last question, I'd like to proceed it with a with a quote of yours. You say, "I want to develop the person. We must remember as coaches that the kids play the game, and the more they touch the ball, and I don't touch the ball, the better they get." It's about developing the person over the player and the player over the skill itself. And you've talked a little bit about this idea through this interview. But with this context, John, I'd like to ask you one final question, and that is what's the legacy that you hope you've left as a coach? Well, that I've helped many sports i've worked with about 25 olympic sports at an elite level you know feeding their coaching education program with ideas i hope that we get better at breaking out of the silos because we kind of live in silos and we do just our thing or even our club just does you know instead of inviting an opposing club over to share training ideas because carl mcgowan said this a rising tide lifts all boats as a reminder that when we help our opponents get better, we raise everybody. And that's worth doing because in doing so, we're also helping humanity get better through sport, which is, you know, developing more leaders and things like that. Um, I think of another idea is that, you know, I, old John Kessel, the very young coach, 50 years ago, had athletes that would pass the ball, air, and then their head would swivel to me for the answer. And everybody's head would swivel because I was the source of all knowledge. Now, I would challenge anybody listening to stop coaching that way, traditionally, being the the source of the knowledge, and to guide discovery is the term that I use all the time now. And it can be even more intricate, but I'll just keep it simple. Guided discovery means rather than me say, put your right foot forward, I ask you questions, and it may take three questions, for you to understand that if you put your right foot forward as a setter, the ball is going to stay off the net, which is a good mistake, rather than tight to the net, which is a bad mistake. But I don't tell you that by saying facts or telling. I ask questions until you say, oh, then I should do this. A great example in my sport, because here's young, old John Kessel. (laughs) Old as in 50 years ago old. Somebody would hit the ball down by their ear. And I can still, to this day, hear myself saying, reach, get on top of the ball. I was a negative coach in my youth. Don't drop your elbow, using the don't word. Now I'm saying, keep your elbow up. And I said that for five or six years and it never solved the problem. And then I sat back and thought, the coach who knows why beats the coach who knows how. The player who knows why will beat the player who knows how. I was way too much in the 70s a how person. And now I say, how, where, show me without the ball where you should hit the ball. And if they still hit it down by their ear, I've got a technical problem. But as we said earlier, the being in the right place at the right time is really hard in volleyball because it's going really fast and 
and you're only touching in a ball in the forearm pass at you know two tenths of a second and it's spiking a hundredth of a second and you know you've got to be in the right place at the right time and learn to be that by looking through the net and playing balls over the net not from in front of the net and so i ask and see the kids show me without the ball full extension okay they know the technique without a ball they know what the technique should look like all right it's time to go do it why are you hitting it here they don't know the answer okay let's let me guide your discovery if you went sooner where would the ball be and they process and they go higher if you went faster where would the ball be higher so if you went later or slower where would the ball be lower so are you hitting it at full extension or too low or too high well i'm hitting it too low so what do you need to do on this identical or similar ball to hit it at full extension i need to go sooner or faster show me and then you're done and that is real coaching in my humble opinion as opposed to a coach from 50 years ago that just kept you know commanding what to do and got mad when they didn't do it because they were humans and i didn't understand regression the mean and that they were going to make streaks in a row good and bad and they're going to be human <laughs> they're going to be little humans or whatever so i don't know i i, I think of that um I, I'm going to share a couple other thoughts that come to mind. One is because I love humor and the joy of playing, I love teaching my kids and introducing them to, um, whose line it is any, is it anyways? And even challenging them to do some of the skits that happens in that amazing show because, you know, they also say from developing leaders that most people are their number one fear is what? Public speaking, right? <laughs> Public speaking. No, no, I can't do it. Even my wife says, John, you go do it, you know, all the time. I go, you're good at this. No, 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 you do it. Well, I know that that show has helped my kids be very successful in being creative because those guys are brilliant beyond words and they're a great, you know, thing to ascribe to and, and do similar. Um, the other part, you know, this started our conversation when I was working in Bonaire and, and had heard you do the human McCutcheon talk. And, and that is how punishment is a methodology that doesn't result in great success and creativity. And we need to get rid of it in sport. So there's a, a movie called Buck. And it's about a horse whisperer who literally trains horses and never punishes them and i think we as coaches if we look at some of the amazing things animal trainers can do with uh, any animal including getting the dolphins to dive down and find mines in in the in a harbor and stuff that the navy trains a hundred percent of that training is positive reinforcement. It is not punishment. You don't, you can't say to the dolphin, do this. 
because it does not know English. You can't demonstrate like I do because it's not going <laughs> to figure it out. You shape their behavior through positive reinforcement and not through punishment. And they do amazing things in all sorts of stuff, including horseback riding and, and everything. And so I really got a lot out of that movie, Buck, because he um, taught me some things on how to coach humans better through how he was coaching horses. And I think one of the best books out there is Galloway's um, The Inner Game of Tennis. Even his revised version is great, but for some reason I'm probably hooked on the old version. But his, you know, because in closing we would say, Paul, how much of this game is mental? And when I ask that around the world in all the countries, they all say 80%. And then I go, how much are you training mentally? And their answer is 10%. <laughs> and you go, okay, oh, we got to bridge that gap. And so now we're back to developing the leadership, developing the empowerment, because we know that that which you teach, you learn. And if that's the case, Get your kids to do a lot more of the coaching, coaching younger kids and letting you stand back, running the entire practice for, you know, the kids that are three years younger than them. Because me, this old 70-year-old guy, I'm showing a 13-year-old a pass and they're looking at me going, is he going to fall over? (laughs) But if it's somebody that's only three years older than them, they can relate to that and copy that and, and have a role model in that. So I highly suggest remembering that that what you teach you learn and letting your kids uh, coach more and you just help guide their discovery more john it's been that for a wrap (laughs) it's been amazing listening to you it's like a a lifetime of wisdom and insight condensed into an hour and can't thank you enough for the preparation you did for today but also the honesty and candor with which you've with which you've answered my question so i wish you all the best the legacy project you're undertaking up there in Pume Hills. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes and people can see how great it is. And I look forward to many more conversations with you in the future, actually, because there is many, many topics which we could uh, circle back and discuss perhaps at another time. Yeah. Yeah, You know, being a sports coach is an amazing opportunity and responsibility, um, as we talked about, you know, and that some of these ideas that you're sharing not just my podcast but if they go back and listen to more they pick up those gems that um, make them a better stronger more effective and efficient and happier and fun coach because they're gonna lose 50 percent of the time at least in my sport (laughs) thanks john thank you so much thank you hi everyone you have been listening to the great coach john kessel I hope you got a lot out of John's down-to-earth style and found a few ideas that you can bring back to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights for me were the way he talks about his old self as a coach and how his motto these days comes from Michelangelo and means still learning. How the great coaches are great storytellers and they are consistent with the messages they deliver and wanting to leave a legacy of having helped develop and empower leaders. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.
And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. It keeps us going, in fact. And so if you do have anything constructive, negative, or anything in between, then please reach out to us. All the details on how you can do that are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.